This is the Hacker Valley Studio Podcast, exploring the human element behind cybersecurity programs and technology. In the past 24 hours, CrowdStrike has processed more than 1 trillion security events. That's 35 million events since I started this sentence. That isn't just big data, that's CrowdStrike data. CrowdStrike's engineers are pioneering the future of the cybersecurity industry and working at an incomparable scale while solving some of the toughest challenges in technology. CrowdStrike is a team that makes a difference every day, protecting customers around the globe from the world's most sophisticated adversaries. If you want to take your passion for technology and purpose-driven work and make it a superpower, join the company that's on a mission that matters by visiting CrowdStrike.jobs. Thank you, CrowdStrike, for sponsoring this episode. Welcome back to the Hacker Valley Studio podcast. Ron usually does the intros, but I wanted to step in and do the intro for our guest today. Jim Lawler is one of my favorite mentors of all time, and he's one of the best storytellers of all time. I'm not going to ruin the surprise. This is an intriguing story beyond all imagination. If you're driving right now, I, I almost guarantee you, you will be sitting in the driveway waiting to finish this one. Without further ado, let's jump right to this incredible episode. What's going on, everybody? You are in the Hacker Valley studio with your hosts, Ron and Chris. E yes, sir. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back again. Our guest is really exciting this episode. We were actually just speaking to our guest on the phone, and we were like, stop. We have to make this a podcast. And today, we have the honor of speaking and sharing a conversation with Jim Lawler. Jim is the author of Living Lies. He also has served as a case officer for the CIA for 25 years, and he has founded and built his business, Special Activities United. Jim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Ron and Chris. It's an honor to uh, be on your show. Jim, I got to tell you, you've been so influential for me. You're one of the very first mentors I've ever had in my career. And not only just from the, the, the nation state level or the intelligence level about my career, but the storytelling aspect that I really fell in love with storytelling after I've heard you tell so many stories over the years. But for the folks that don't know who you are just yet, would love to hear a little bit about your background and what you're doing today. Thank you, Chris. I think in some respects, though, we've kind of reversed positions because I'm learning a lot from you these days. You were a natural, <laughs> my man, uh, a real natural at telling stories and narrating things. So whatever I managed to contribute to your success, I feel very gratified uh, to learn about that. But my own background, I grew up in Houston, Texas. I went to Rice University for undergraduate school I uh, got a degree in political science, which is not a science. In fact, any profession which has the word science, like social science, political science, they're not sciences. Real sciences like physics and chemistry and things like that, they don't have to put the word science in there. <laughs> what do you do if you've got kind of a useless degree? You go to graduate school and you get either an MBA or, in my case, a law degree. So I went off to the University of Texas and 
you know, studied real hard for three years. It's not an easy, easy road to hoe. And uh, the last year of law school, like, what are you concerned about? Finding a job. So I looked around. I was interviewing with law firms. And lo and behold, this was 1976. CIA was coming to campus to interview for attorneys to join the CIA's Office of General Counsel, the legal staff at the Central Intelligence Agency. So on a lark, I went to this interview with a gentleman named Bill Wood, and he was a retired case officer who was responsible for the Austin region for recruiting for the CIA. And here he was at the University of Texas Law School interviewing me for a possible position with the Office of General Counsel. Well, we got about 15 minutes into this, not even 15 minutes, maybe five minutes. Yeah, I think it was five minutes into this interview when he looked at me and he said, Jim, have you ever thought about the clandestine service? Now, I told him, I said, you know, I don't even know what you're talking about. This was long before shows like 24. I I think we'd had a a movie earlier that year, Three Days of the Condor with Robert Redford. Some of you may have watched that in recent years, reruns of it. It was interesting, but what the heck does the CIA do? They didn't even have a sign out on Dolly Madison Boulevard in McLean saying that this is a central intelligence agency. It was so such a black box. Nobody really talked about it. And so I said, well, what is the clandestine service? And Mr. Wood said, well, Jim, I'm sorry. I, I really can't tell you much about it. But he said, I think you'd be good at this. So he gave me an application. I took it home. But I knew this was really kind of a fruitless exercise because my wife's mother at the time, unfortunately, was very ill and ultimately would pass away a couple of years later. So there was no chance that I was going to take her, move to Washington, D.C., 1,200 miles away from Houston, and then on to possible overseas assignments. It was not going to happen. So I returned the uh, application to him and said, it's just not the right time. Instead, I made a, I guess I could say a a huge mistake in that I was recruited myself into a family-owned business. My dad basically offered me a salary that was hard to turn down, and I was going to be running this business. It was a business that produced metal components for steel buildings in Houston. And so I started doing this, and after a very few months, I found out, A, it was very boring. B, I was making a lot of money, but C, it was so unsatisfying. And there'd always been a strong sense of national service in my family. My dad had been a uh, military officer in World War II, a bomber pilot. Uh, My great-grandfather had been a uh, general in the Union Army under General Grant. And I just felt like "This this is okay. I'm making a lot of money, but what's the point? And so I would come home every night and unload on my poor wife and complain about the fact that this was just such an unsatisfying experience. So, you know, this is not what I'd studied hard to do. This This was not satisfying anything other than our bank account. And she would listen patiently until after about three years, finally, she'd had it up to here. And she said to me, she said, Jim, look, either do something about it or stop your belly aching. And I thought, you know, that is really excellent advice. If you're not willing to do something to rectify your situation, 
And all you're going to do is complain, well, it's pointless. And so I said, okay, fine, I will. And I had kept Mr. Wood's card. I went into my office. I wrote him a letter. I jokingly say this was long before Al Gore invented the internet. Well, I, had to, <laughs> I had to literally write a snail mail letter saying, you may not remember me, but three years ago you interviewed me and timing was not right. But now I'm really interested in pursuing this opportunity with your organization. It wasn't three days later that I got a phone call from a young woman who never identified herself or the organization. All she said was, Jim, um, Mr. Wood got your letter, and he's going to be at the Holiday Inn out on the Gulf Freeway at 3 o'clock next Thursday. Can you be in the lobby then? Again, no mention of CIA, no mention of anything, just very mysterious. I said, yes, ma'am, I sure can. So I went, showed up. He was there. We went off to his room. We chatted for about two hours. And he said, I'd like to fly you to Washington in a couple of weeks for three days of testing. I said, okay, I'll, I'll be happy to do that. So I went. And then about three or four months later, I went back for more testing. This time, you know, it was the shrink exam. Lord knows how I got through the shrink exam, but I did. <laughs> the polygraph, you know, where they're making sure that I'm not a counterintelligence threat or some kind of criminal lunatic. And uh, then uh, some other tests and interviews. And at the end of that period, after about another three months, I got a phone call one day saying that I had been selected to become a case officer at the CIA, and they asked if I could start in two weeks. And I said, well, you know, I'd really like to, but I can't just leave my dad's company with only two weeks notice. I love my dad. I love my brothers. I can't do that to him. They said, no worries. We've got another class of career trainees is what we were called at the time. Uh, we have another class of career trainees that's going to start in about three and a half months in February of 1980. Could you be there? I said, absolutely. So I'm overjoyed. You know, I know I'm going to be living undercover. I have to tell all of my family and friends, with the exception of my dad and my wife's father that, uh, and her sister, that in fact, I'll be working for the State Department, which was I was under state, what we call State Department cover. I couldn't go around telling anybody who I was really working for. And the really bizarre thing was I had no idea absolutely none, what they wanted me to do. I mean, I would have taken a job on the planet Neptune just to get, get out of Houston. <laughs> and I, I didn't know, and I mean, really, how absurd is that? How many people go apply for a job and they have no idea what they're going to be doing? But I didn't care. So <laughs> come mid-February 1980, we pack up the car. My wife is pregnant with our first child. We've got our pet cocker spaniel with us. And we drive all the way to Washington, and I start work on February 19th, 1980, in a job that I had no idea what I was going to be doing. Well, it didn't take long, maybe a few days, a few, maybe at most a couple of weeks, before I found out exactly what they wanted me to do. And I'm going to be very blunt about this, because this is, in essence, what a CIA case officer does. They expected me to exploit, to manipulate, to subvert, to suborn people 
to convince them to commit espionage, to commit treason, to betray a trust. Now, those are that's harsh terms, but that's exactly what CIA case officers do when they recruit clandestine sources overseas in foreign countries, foreign programs. They expected me to manipulate these people, exploit these people, turn them into our human spies. And I found out something fairly early in my career that not only was I pretty good at it, but I really enjoyed it. Now, that's the uh, sociopathic part of being a a case officer. In fact, a a, a psychiatrist friend of mine once remarked, he says, Lawler, you're nothing but a sociopath, but one within lanes. Those lanes are called U.S. laws. Mm. And so I I embarked upon a 25-year career, enjoyed the heck out of it. I spent five tours overseas. We went overseas in 1982, and we were not reassigned to the United States until 12 years later, 1994. And so I had tour after tour where I was expected to go after people who could provide us with extremely interesting intelligence information. And I employed a number of techniques to manipulate these people to convince them that they should give us basically their most closely guarded secrets. And I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the heck out of it. That's such an incredible origin story. And we talk quite often on this podcast about insider threat and usually from the corporation perspective. But now we're talking about nation state level insider threat, counterintelligence type stuff. You tell the best stories about some of these interactions with these folks in these foreign countries, and you don't have to talk about exactly where it was or the mission or anything like that, but give us a little bit of a, an insight to what that world was like and some of the experiences that you had while you were there. Let me start by saying that convincing somebody to betray their country, in my opinion, is a heck of a lot harder than convincing someone to betray their company. Right. Most people have at least some sense of loyalty to their country. But, you know, how many people really have a sense of loyalty to their company? I'm not sure. And so, in a sense, my job was much more difficult. And we, yes, people people use the term insider threat all the time. It's become a, you know, a term du jour. And yet very few people really understand what motivates people to do this. And there's a... Uh, an acronym called MICE, which stands for money, ideology, coercion, and ego. Uh, personally, I think money is rarely a motivation. Rarely do people betray a trust for money. It, money may represent something, the ego, the coercion, the, you know, the revenge issue, but it rarely, st- very few, if any people in my experience ever did this just for money. They had some other thing. They they may have needs, which I'm going to get into a couple of stories about people that have financial needs. And, but it wasn't about the money. It was about something else. It was about maybe love of their children, love of, you know, a paramour, a lover. It could have been a revenge issue. And usually in my experience, it was a mosaic of all of these motivations. There was rarely a single motivation for why people betray a trust and become an insider threat. So I'll start off by talking about one of my first, I guess, recruitments, my first successes. 
I was uh, sitting in a European post and we received a uh, cable from CIA headquarters that asked us to please pursue citizens of a certain country that was going to enter into some crucial negotiations with the United States within a year. And it turned out the United States had no sources in this other country's diplomatic service that were going to be engaged in these negotiations. And so we could not tell what this other country wanted. We didn't know. We had no insights into their privileged positions or anything like that. So this cable goes out from CIA headquarters saying, if you've got anybody who is from this particular country, if you're in touch with anybody from this particular country who has this kind of potential access, please up your tempo of development. That's what we call where we increase the, uh, the, fr- the befriending factor where people come to trust the recruiting officer so that we can then enter into what we call a recruitment pitch to convince the person to commit espionage. So they said, please, you know, engage upon this. Well, as luck would have it, I had met a gentleman from this particular country who had exactly the access that we needed. I'd met him in a uh, ski school and we'd become friends, but I wasn't really pursuing him per se because I had not yet until just then seen that we had a need for somebody like him. So with this instruction from our CIA headquarters, I said, oh, okay. So I contacted him. And I intensified the uh, friendship development, you know, getting, we'd be going out to lunch, having dinner together, doing things quite frequently over the next several weeks, several months. I think it was two or three months until finally, and again, remember, this is my first tour overseas. Finally, I thought, okay, I feel like he and I trust each other enough to where he would accept a recruitment pitch based simply on the fact that we're friends and the fact that I've got a fairly persuasive personality. Now, this was a very, very naive uh, perception on my part that I could do that. And yet my CIA headquarters, they were so desperate for sources, they agreed to this naive first tour officer's recruitment proposal where I really couldn't cite any vulnerabilities. Normally when you, you do these things, you say, well, this person really needs some help here, or they're really irritated with something, or they need money for this or that. They're in a desperate uh, place. We think, you know, you, you do this risk assessment. Well, I'm sure my risk assessment, my recruitment proposal was amateurish to say the least, but headquarters being as desperate as they were, they were just as naive as I was, and they, they approved it. So I take this guy to dinner, and I uh, began after a, a little bit kind of launched into my recruitment pitch, which I'm sure was pretty crude, not sophisticated. You know, recruitment pitches are like most everything else you do in life. The more you do of them, hopefully the better you get at it. What is a recruitment pitch? Okay. So Ron, you know, you and I are buddies and you've got access to uh, some information that we need. You know, our countries are friends, but these negotiations, can you help me out, buddy? I'm willing to pay you a thousand bucks a month if you can give me some insights into what's going on here, a window. Mm. I mean, it's about about like, it's got to be more sophisticated than that. But basically I am pitching you to (laughs) basically reveal your, the cards of your country 
to commit treason. And I've just said for a price, I said, you know, I'm willing to pay you a retainer, a, you know, a consulting fee. We always try and soften this by calling it a consulting fee or an honorarium, a thousand bucks a month or whatever fee, whatever figure I come up with. Well, Ron, if I had just done that to you, I'm sure you would have looked at me in horror and said, Jim, you know, if I'd have just asked you to betray Chris, you know, I want to, I want to, I want you to tell me everything that, that Hacker Valley Studios is doing. And, you know, you would have been horrified. Hopefully you would have been horrified. (laughs) Chris, keep your eye on this guy. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully you would have been horrified and you would turn me down. And guess what happened in my case? The guy turns me down. He said, Jim, he said, you and I are friends. But, you know, this would be morally wrong. Mm. Now, I have pitched probably somewhere north of 60 people in my career. He's the only person that ever posed a moral objection. Really? Why do you think most people turn down a recruitment pitch? Can either one of you hazard a guess? My guess was going to be because of the the moral issue, but... I would also say of uh, getting caught. There you got it. You just put your finger <laughs> on it. It's fear. Um, <laughs> I mean, they do a little risk analysis in their head. And if the delta is fear is way up here, you know, getting caught is way up here. And what you're offering is way down here. You know, they're going to turn you down. In fact, I had I pitched one intelligence officer a few months later. And he said, Jim, you know, they uh, hang people in my country if we do things like that. And he's right. They would if he got caught. But then to my amazement, he said, but uh, could I have a rain check on that? Hmm. And I went, a rain check? He said, yeah, you know, my son, he's three years old. I don't need you now, but in 15 years, he'll be college age and I may need you then. So I wrote that down, sent it to headquarters. Because every time, you know, anytime anybody says something like that and is in their file forever, well, lo and behold, 15 years later, this gentleman was posted to Washington as the head of his intelligence organization. And they came to me uh, from division and they said, do you think he was uh, being sincere? And I said, you know, knowing him, I'm pretty sure he was. And I can tell you guys that rain check was cashed in 15 years later. Wow. So. Yeah. But to return to my story, here my friends turned me down. Well, okay, of course I went away. This is my first big recruitment pitch and it just landed on its ear. I go home kind of upset. And I recalled that at the CIA, we have a saying that it's okay to be turned down, but it's not okay to be turned in. What if my friend goes to his ambassador and complains that he had just been propositioned by young Mr. Jim Lawler at the U.S. Embassy to commit treason. And what I didn't tell you earlier was my friend was number two in his embassy. So he was the ambassador's deputy. And this ambassador had a terrible reputation for a horrible temper and for being a real egomaniac. And I could just, in my mind's eye, envision him storming into our embassy, going to our ambassador, and issuing a strongly worded complaint, a, as we say in State Department language, a démarche, 
basically, which is a complaint that you have just been so provocative trying to proposition my deputy to commit treason, to be a traitor. Well, this is not going to go well, I can tell you guys. This is not going to go well for Jim either. And even though I had approval from CIA headquarters to do this, I'm also several thousand miles from home. And I know how people who are remote from where the action takes place are prone to saying, well, Jim Lawler messed this up. Yeah, we gave him approval, but clearly he must have been making up a lot of this. And, you know, he executed this poorly. And so guess who's going to be twisting in the wind if this goes south? It's going to be me. Well, I kind of stewed on that for about two or three days. And finally, I decided, you know, I've got to call this guy up and take his temperature and make sure that he and I are still friends and that I haven't totally ruptured the relationship with this abrupt, you know, proposition that he's turned down. So I screwed up my courage. I gave him a call. And the first thing that I was relieved to learn was that he didn't hang up in my ear. (laughs) That was good. And all I said was, you know, I really enjoyed that dinner we had a few days ago. Just wondering if you'd be up for doing it again this coming weekend. And to my relief, he said, you know, Jim, I was just thinking the same thing. That would be nice. So I'm fairly, you know, feeling better about this, that he's not mad, he's not angry. And so I um, I said, great, well, then let's meet at this particular restaurant on this time on Friday night. So my aim at this next meeting was simply to re, you know, re-solidify our relationship to make sure that we're still all copacetic, you know, everything's fine, that he's not uh, hinting that he's told anybody or angry, anything like that. That was my only goal. So we get there, waiter drops the uh, menus off, walks away, and the first thing out of my friend's mouth, Jim, that offer you made me last Friday, is that still good? And I I looked at him and I said, well, of course, that's why I made the offers because we're friends. He said, well, he said, what you don't know was about three days after my, our dinner, my wife announced that she wants a divorce and I can't go back to my country next summer and pay her the alimony to which she's entitled and put my two teenage boys in private schools Because in my country, unless you get a private education, you know, you don't get any education at all. He said, I can't do that unless I accept your offer. And he said, now, I know it's morally wrong. And I started to say something about it's not morally wrong to help friends out in a tight situation. And he said, Jim, I know it's morally wrong. Well, one thing I learned in law school early in my legal career was that if the judge rules in your favor, shut up and get out of court quickly. And so I said, okay. And so we then entered into a clandestine relationship. And I found out, yeah, okay, he was motivated because he loved his children, because suddenly he needed the money to pay that alimony. He needed the money to pay for their education. Children's education always is a big one with a lot of people. But I found out there were other motivations that were almost as compelling and maybe even overriding 
that happened to coincide with with those the things that that ultimately caused him to commit treason. And I found that out when he handed me an enormous stack of classified information from his country's embassy. And he said to me, you know, Jim, I can't stand my ambassador. That low-life son of a bitch steals credit for everything that I do and everything that everyone in the embassy does. And he goes around this country pontificating and you know, making these elaborate statements about what a great guy he is. I can't stand this guy. And he said, every time I hand you this classified information, it's as if I'm kicking him in the face. Whoa. Mm. And I said, you know, you and I are buddies. I said, bring me some more of this and let's kick him again a few times. (laughs) (laughs) I found out that revenge is one of the purest motivations for causing somebody to betray a trust. And it actually makes sense if you think about it, because in their mind, they were not the ones who betrayed the trust. In fact, they had been betrayed first, and they're just evening the score. The Jesuits have a a term for this. It's called covert compensation. You know, you get back, you get your revenge, and you were not the traitor. It was they who betrayed you first. Oh. So you see, that's how they they mentally, you know, most people, unless you're a pure narcissist or a pure sociopath, most people have those moral principles where they are not going to violate that unless they feel like they were the victims first and that they're just righting a wrong. And, you know, and then I found out there's other motivations that went into his decision process. This was uh, revealed to me when we uh, we had to put him through a uh, counterintelligence polygraph. Now, I'm not going to get into how much I believe in polygraphs or not, but in his case, we needed to, we wanted to polygraph him to make sure that his sudden change of mind was legitimate and that he was not, in fact, a double agent being controlled by the intelligence or security service of his country. And the reason we needed to be doubly sure of that was because he was going to be handled, in other words, uh, his handler, the person that was going to receive the classified information when he got home, would be one of my colleagues whom we call a knock officer, that's NOC for non-official cover. It means a deep cover CIA case officer who's not posing as a diplomat, possibly as a business person. And unfortunately, these officers do not have diplomatic protection. And if they're caught, they go to jail for a long, long time. So we needed to be sure that my friend was being legitimate. He was being truthful. And so we had to put him through a counterintelligence polygraph. Now, in this case, the issues were going to be very simple, very black and white. I mean, I can tell you almost verbatim, what the uh, you know the questions would be something like have you told anyone about your secret relationship with CIA second question would be has anybody directed you to cooperate with CIA and number 3 are you um, you know working with any intelligence organization or security organization other than CIA these are black and white yes or no answers that questions that you know should be black and white yes or no 
and should be easy for a polygraph operator to read. I mean, all a polygraph is is a stress test. I've been through many of these things, I can tell you. You know, they're not fun, but they're, you know, in a simple thing like that, it's it's it should be pretty discernible. Now, just a little background here. The polygraph operator is not supposed to ask any questions other than the questions that he has rehearsed with the case officer beforehand. He is not entitled to go, he or she, because it could be a female polygraph operator, is not entitled to go out on what we call a fishing expedition and just ask random questions. They've already got a script of the questions in front of them, and they are to stick to that script unless the person being tested gives them some reason to venture in a different direction. So you can imagine my (laughs) chagrin, my irritation, when this young, inexperienced polygraph operator who was going to test my first crucial case, in spite of the fact that he had rehearsed these questions with me, this was the first foreigner he had ever tested. For all I know, it might have been the only foreigner he'd ever met in his life. And so my friend is strapped into the polygraph machine, all these uh, you know electrodes and sensors on him. And the first things out of this polygraph operator's mouth, gee, I'm just curious, but why are you doing this? And I thought, uh uh-oh, my friend, the one who has the moral sense of balance, is going to come to his senses, have a moral epiphany, and is going to storm out of this room. And there goes my recruitment once again, you know, down the tubes. I was amazed, though, when my friend, he laughed and he said, because I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Mm. He was got that kind of Walter Mitty motivation of being a spy, which that motivates some people. You know, I'm, this is fun. I'm a spy. I'm, I'm getting away with this and only myself and my case officer know about it. And yeah, I've got all these reasons, but part of it too is the thrill, the thrill of, of being a spy, doing something forbidden like this and getting away with it, outsmarting those jerks that, that have treated me like this. And, and by the way, his other motivations and uh, my friend was a very light-skinned, blue-eyed, blonde native of a country where most of the people are mixed race. And he said, claimed, rightly or wrongly, that because of his light skin and his blonde hair and his blue eyes, that he was the victim of reverse discrimination. Ah, you know, I don't know. Because, you know, whether this was true or not, I mean, you know, I always like to say, well, I was always discriminated against because I was short. And maybe there was some truth to this, but yet he was trying to rationalize again why he was doing what he was doing. And so I learned I learned a lot from this first case. And by the way, he then went on. I learned a year or so later after uh, he went back to his home country that he was able to give us not only all of his country's negotiating positions, but he was able to give us all of their fallback positions and their bottom line. And I always like to ask folks, if if you were buying a house or a car, wouldn't you like to know the lowest offer you could give to where you wouldn't leave any money on the table and yet the seller wouldn't walk away? Right. Right. Well, that's what he did. And it was estimated over the next several years that by our having that privileged information, we saved the United States government 
tens of billions of dollars. Mm. So it turned out to be a worthwhile exercise. It sounds like everything positive happened and it gave you a lot of experience on the job. I mean, I was just sitting here listening and felt like I was almost there through all the descriptions that you had. You know, you're talking about mice, money, ideology, coercion, and ego. And one of the things that I wanted to touch on is your book. Are these some of the pillars that, you know, and stories that are in your book? Tell us a bit about that and and how that's been for you. Uh, Thank you. Yes, it is. Living Lies is an espionage novel. It's not a... um, it's not a memoir. I couldn't write a memoir because it would have to be classified and that can't sell. So in lieu, of a, <laughs> right, in lieu of a memoir, I wrote this novel several years ago, just published it. And it's about how we penetrate the Iranian nuclear weapons program. And in it, I go into various motivations and techniques that case officers use to recruit clandestine sources. And you'll find that of the Iranians who are cooperating in the book, the spies, our spy, the spies that we've recruited, that a number of these motivations come into play. Ideology, being motivated to uh, do the right thing. That's always, a, that's a significant thing. Resentment against the boss, resentment against the system. There are people, at least in my book, in my books about Iran, but there are people who resent the uh, mullahs, who resent the uh, this, you know, religious state. They they may not they may be somewhat religious themselves, but they don't think that the religious establishment should be dictating the terms of how people live. And also, since the religious establishment in Iran, to a large extent, is hypocritical, and they they can detect that. And so, in the book, you know, we get into this. There's a uh, one CIA case officer who recruits legitimate sources. There's a two Iranian brothers, extremely bright. In fact, they're genius physicists, metallurgists who are basically seduced into the uh, nuclear weapons program. And they're working for an egotistical, narcissistic, venal Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps general who is, by the way, he's not, he doesn't want a nuclear weapons program for Iran for patriotic reasons. No, he wants it so that he can make money in the commodities market because he has a secret Swiss bank account and he's enriching himself at uh, Iran's expense and everybody else's expense. So his motivations, the, the Iranians' motivations are purely, you know, wanting to do this. He's got his own ego trip. He has become advanced in the military and the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps by following his uncle, who is a grand ayatollah. And he's even gone so far as to assassinate the supreme leader so that his uncle can then fleet up to be the supreme leader. And of course, he gets to go with him. And so he's manipulating his uncle. He's uh, got, you know, he runs a double agent. A double agent is somebody who volunteers to CIA or another intelligence organization, but in fact is phony from the start. But he directs a uh, double agent against a uh, less sophisticated CIA officer who accepts everything at face value and basically plays the United States like a well-tuned fiddle. I truly encourage everyone to go out there and grab that book. 
I have one final question for you in all your years and pushing people into this realm where it has to be difficult to decide to become a traitor, to commit treason. And I'm sure that you've learned an incredible amount about humanity. And what was that one piece of knowledge that you took away from all of your experiences and applied to your life? What is that one hidden thing that you saw that most people don't see about what it is to be a human being? That's an excellent question. I think one thing I've learned is that every human being as even someone that we might otherwise consider to be a, a rather despicable person, but that every human being, you can find something redeeming about them and something that you can engage them and gain their trust and become their friend. I mean, even the most despicable people still have some friends. And if you can become that person's friend and then employ them in a good way, I've, I've had to recruit nuclear proliferators. Uh, my team was the one that took down the AQCon nuclear weapons network. These people basically were merchants of death. They were helping a country, countries, plural, gain nuclear weapons capabilities. And this is the same type of weapon that killed 140,000 people at Hiroshima. And yet these people, I had to suspend any animosity I might have, find out why they were doing this, and then touch the cords where I could persuade them to change their loyalty to where they were on my team. Once they're on my team, or I should more properly say our team, the American team, then they're part of us. And I want them to switch that loyalty and always, you know, try and do something for. And so by doing that, you can usually find everybody, in my opinion, is recruitable at the right. If they're, if they're given enough stress over enough time. I used to be a rock climber. And I, I like to tell folks, the way you climb the rock is you look for the cracks. You look for the crack systems. Where can I put my feet? Where can I put my hands? How do I climb that rock? You know, unless you're a fly, you don't climb, you know, saw, you know, polished rock. And right. so I'm always looking for the crack systems. And that same is true with people. If I study somebody long enough, I can find out what those stresses, what those cracks are. And everybody's got that. Uh, you know, if you don't have stress and cracks in your life, then you must be dead. <laughs> everybody has that. And if I study it long enough... I can eventually see the opportunity. In one case, it took me 11 years to recruit one foreign official. And by the time I recruited him, he had gone through a nasty divorce. He had been uh, sent back to a country where his ethnic group was no longer num numero uno. And he felt like the system had betrayed him. His wife had betrayed him. He was really, you know, and by the way, I, I recruited over a certain time period about three people going through bad divorces because that's one of the most psychologically upsetting times of anybody's life. You need a friend that you can trust. And so if I find somebody that's going through a divorce and I can befriend them, you know, not only do they need financial support, they need emotional support. Well, in this case, this guy, 11 years later, he was ripe for the picking. In fact, he wrote me a, an email after he got back to his home country and he discovered this glass ceiling for people, you know, of his ethnic group. And he says, Jim, I've given all these years to these folks. He said, how can I be loyal to a country which treats its citizens like this? Mm. You know, that's like a, 
That's like a sign. Come recruit me, Jim. And so I met him in a foreign country. It took me 30 seconds to break cover to say, you know, you may have suspected this all along, but you were polite enough never to say it. But I'm really a CIA officer, and I'd like you to be on my team. Well, that's a powerful motivation. And he joined our team and worked for us for a number of years. And today he's got a private business in his home country. It's been very successful. And sometimes he jokes and he says, Jim, I really need a picture of you to put up in the back here with a caption that says our founder. Jim, incredible. I'm sure you have people sitting in their driveways all over the world waiting to hear the end of this incredible episode. For the folks that want to stay up to date with you, your book, and any subsequent books you might have after that, what are the best ways that people can do that? Well, if you go on Amazon.com uh, and, and find Living Lies by James Lawler, uh, it's got a uh, author's profile. It's got a way to contact me. And, you know, I, I welcome that. I've got a, you know, a number of uh, speaking engagements over the next uh, few months. I've enjoyed this one as well, uh, especially reuniting with my old friend Chris and meeting his buddy Ron. And, you know, I, I welcome those things. I've got an email address in the book that you can write queries to. I'm available for speaking engagements. If you have a book club and they uh, decide to read my book, I'm more than happy to join virtually and comment on the book. Any questions you might have, uh, those are fun. I'm a member of a book club myself, and we've been privileged to have a couple of authors uh, come and, and give commentaries on their books. And Whether I can do it physically or not in the age of pandemic, I can't say, but uh, I could always do it virtually. And, and then I've got another book coming out in uh, January, which will be not exactly a sequel to Living Lies, but there are some common characters in both. And I have a third book, which is about 40% finished, that I hope to get finished by next summer. And they all are about espionage and about uh, and their thrillers. So, you know, feel free to contact me. I'd be happy to respond. Yes. To summarize, buy his book, have him at your conference. You will not be disappointed. Jim, thanks again. It was great talking and we'll see everyone next time. If you found value in this content, it would mean the world to us if you shared it on social media, sent it to a friend or talked about it over coffee. Thank you.